Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. You've all heard the expression, or versions of the expression, you have to have skin in the game to be at your best. In other words, you're going to give your best efforts when you have something to win or lose. Today's interview with Vitaly Katzenelson will provide you with a fascinating look at people who have their soul in the game and will hopefully inspire you to take a closer look at the meaning of your life and start asking yourself the right questions, like, is my life meaningful? Am I going anywhere? Do I love what I'm doing? Am I the best I can be? At least that's what Vitaly's book, Soul in the Game, did for me, and I hope it brings similar results to you. We've covered a lot of heroes here at this show, people who reached the top of their game and were able to contribute something to others. Their art, their music, their skills, their leadership, their philosophies, and their indomitable spirit in peacetime and in war. In their own way, they reach the top of their game because not only their mind and body, but their soul was in the game. Our guest today is Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly holds a CFA and is the CEO of Individual Portfolio Management, better known as IMA. Vitaly is the author of a popular series of financial newsletters, as well as multiple books, including his latest release, Soul in the Game, which takes a break from investment advice and covers all the facets of trying to live a meaningful life, using lots of family stories and little life lessons often learned the hard way. As we get started, I can't resist asking Vitaly for some opinions regarding where this stock market is going and how do we know when we hit bottom. But after that, I've got lots of questions for him, like, what can be learned from ancient philosophers like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca? And how does one actually hone their skills, their art, their craft? And how can this benefit the other part of your life? What can be learned from great artists and composers? Vitaly has the answers. Vitaly, it's great to have you with us today. John, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm really excited. Can you share a little bit of your background with us? In fact, a lot of your background with us, because it has a lot to do with this book and what you provide us with. 
and tell us what inspired you to write this book. Well, thank you. Well, John, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your, on your podcast. You're welcome. Um, let me start. Um, so I was born in Murmansk, Russia. So um, if you look at the map of Russia, if you look up and the very, very top of the map to the left, above the Arctic Circle, that's where Murmansk is. Home of Red October. Is, they, they, that's right, the home for the fiction, although I got to remind people it's a fictional submarine of Red October, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a located so far north that basically in the, in the winter time, it has uh, very little sunlight. And in the summertime, you have these beautiful uh, white nights. Um, so I grew up in Murmansk uh, in the Jewish family, and um, we moved to United States in 1991. I was 18 years old. So you can argue that I spent my formidable years in Russia, but but at the same time I spent more, all my life as an adult in the United States. So I kind of have this, uh, I have this both lenses I look at the world you know, from. Um, and the way you put and, it, born in Russia, made in America. I think that's a good description. No, that's right. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I remember when I wrote this line, I'm like, oh, my God, that, that is exactly what I am. I'm born in Russia, made in America, yes. So let me tell you about myself a little bit more. So I run an investment firm, Investment Management Associates, IMA. And what we do is very similar to what Warren Buffett does. In a sense, I'm a value investor. You know, we're looking to buy high-quality companies, and uh, build a portfolio of them. And people come to us, give us their life savings and say, Vitaly, please don't screw it up. And that's kind of, that's what we do. Please take a moment and explain to our listeners just what Stoic philosophy is and how it's helped you in life and in business. When you, when you hear the word philosophy, right, it sounds very ancient and you start thinking about the, the this uh, statues out of marble and start thinking about things that kind of you can't really relate to. Um, that's kind of what that was my perception of kind of anything philosophy all right you know or sayings that you you know that are sound so complicated you're like i don't know what it means stoic philosophy is anything like that is and i'm sorry is is not like that at all so uh, just to clarify um stoic philosophy started in uh in ancient greece basically two thousand years ago and uh Zeno, there's like right? By Z- yeah, by, by Zeno. And his story is kind of interesting because he was a wealthy merchant who's, uh, who basically suffered a shipwreck and he, you know, he, where he lost all his wealth. He barely survived. And, uh, and then he basically, uh, and he started this philosophy as a way, you can argue, as a way to deal with, you know, what do you do when you lose everything? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, or at least all your material wealth. And uh, so he's, you know, and um, and uh, uh, it started in uh, in uh, Athens in the place uh, Stoica, which is called, which is basically translated as painted porch. Um, and there are three figures that are basically addressed in the book. Um, I spend very little time talking about Zeno because I don't think we have much writing from him. Uh, we talk about Epictetus, who basically was a slave. Um, uh, uh, we talk about Marcus Aurelius, who on the opposite side of the spectrum, who was the, the emperor of Rome. And then we talk about Seneca, who was probably one of the wealthiest people in Rome, uh, other than the emperor, and who was uh, kind of the Renaissance man, you know, thousands of years before the Renaissance. Um, 
and he was a senator, he was a playwright, he was, you know, and he, you know, a man of many talents. Um, But anyway, so why Stoic philosophy? And why did it hit me over the head? So when we are born, think of like, I'm going to use an analogy of a computer. Think of us as, you know, we have this hardware. And then the operating system, and we have this very rudimentary operating system. Uh, and then this operating system is written over time to us, you know, kind of the layers of that are added over time. A lot of it is influenced by our parents. A lot of it, you know, we, you know it's also written a lot, you know, they, there's a lot of influence from our friends. Our circumstances have a huge impact on that. So there is some, there's a certain amount of level of chaos that's how it's created. Um, operating system created. Well, Stoic philosophy provides provides this framework and operating system for life. How do you go through life, and how do you deal with that? And that's what kind of Stoic philosophy does for me. It kind of gives me this structure. By the way, like it doesn't conflict. It's not. It's not in competition with religion. You. You. you if you want to. If you're religious, it's still going to help you. If you're not religious, it's going to help you as well. And uh, in fact, I'm not a religious person at all, but I have a few friends from both Christians and Jews who are uh, religious people who read it and said, oh my God, like the, and the, this sounds like a lot of principles sounds very similar to uh, uh, that there are in those religions. And I'm sure there's a lot of similarity between that and the uh, Asian philosophies too. I mean, Asian philosophies and Asian religions as well. But what Stoicism does, it brings a very good framework, an operating system that I apply to my life. So how does it help me? Well, I think the end of the goal, it gives me, it minimizes the volatility of my blood pressure. <laughs> I, it's a, yeah. or, or, it's a or, or let me put it this way. It minimizes the volatility, negative volatility. In other words, I'm able to handle adversity in life, which we all have, much better. And I think at the end, it makes me a better person. And by the you know, and that's and uh, you know, I it's in that therefore it spills into my business and my personal life, etc. So that's. We'll return with Vitaly Katzenelson, author of Soul in the Game, right after these sponsor messages. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And now back to Soul in the Game with Vitaly Ketsenelson. Yeah, it's it's having one of those personalities where you're, when you're in the worst of the storm, you're already starting to see the silver lining. That's right. There's yeah. ways that this storm's going to benefit me. I know there are, you know. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I wanted to compliment. You had uh, some color pictures in the book uh, showing your father's art. His art is excellent, and I enjoy it very much. It's very 
Yeah, I see it behind you right now as I'm looking at you. It's it's uh it's wonderfully done and it it leaves some great scenes in your mind. Very very talented. There's so many good pieces of advice in this book and so many good stories uh, that you've gotten from your children and your family uh, and your your travel through life. You've done a good job in recognizing the experiences of your life and the good things you've seen and being able to write about it in a way that's effectual, in a way that's interesting to the reader. And that's something I enjoyed very much in the book, uh, Soul in the Game. Uh, I know that comes through in your newsletters as well, but I'm glad that you took the time uh, and the effort to put together a book just based on the impressions that life has left you with and trying to share that with others in ways that can make their life more meaningful. Uh, you've done a good job with that, and I know our leaders are. I know our readers will enjoy that. One, well, thank you very one, much. One one little story you have is setting your egg timer to six months. I was hoping you could kind of explain that. Some of these self improvement books where uh, people tell you what to do, that's not what I do. Um, Zeno has this. Uh, I, I, I think. I, I think. Uh, if I'm, I forget, I forget. I think Seneca was quoting there, uh, Zeno, where he said, "What I'm sharing with you is not a doctor talking to a patient, but just one patient talking to another patient and sharing his, uh, you know, his, you know, how he deals with his illnesses." So that's how I approach this book as well. I'm just sharing how I'm doing this and you know, my my self improvement journey. So. My brother and I were at the airport in uh, in I think it was uh, somewhere in Europe, and I bought some and I bought some uh, knickknacks for my you know, for my uh, for my kids, and uh, and when we uh, left the airport uh, and you know and got on the plane, I realized whatever those knickknacks I bought, I left them at the, at the airport, and I and, and I and I and I got upset for about three seconds. And then I realized how how unimportant those things are, and then this is where the story came about. This is what I, this is what I told my brother why I'm not upset about this. Um, there was this wonderful book called The Last Lecture, and in this book, and I'm just going blank on the author of the book, and I'll will come to me. Um, Randy Pash, Randy Pash, um, basically. Uh, it's it's the, the, the uh, so the book the way the book came about. Randy Posh is a 44 year old uh, guy in the prime of his life, diagnosed with cancer, and he has six months to live. Uh, and he teaches uh, at Cornell University, and where at Cornell University they have this tradition, where a teacher before the you know, teacher retires gives the last lecture. Okay, well, when he gave that last lecture, except that was literally he was about to die in six months. So that lecture kind of became incredibly popular and it was a Wall Street Journal article about this. And by the way, after I would advise your listeners, after they're done listening to this podcast, just look up this lecture. It's absolutely incredible. And Randy wrote a book called The Last Lecture. And in this book, he has this wonderful story. Um, he bought a brand new convertible. And this is before he was married. And he came to his sister to pick up his uh, niece, and, uh, niece and nephew to take him out to, uh, I think there's the, to amusement park or something. And uh, his sister tells her kids, Uncle Randy has this brand new car. Make sure you don't. Um, don't spill don't your ruin. soda all over the back Yeah, seat. yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, all the drinks. You, you make sure you don't ruin it. 
And while she's, she's saying it, he opens a can of Coke and pours it on the on the back seats of the car. Aye. And this, and this, just imagine this, right? And oh my God, my Ferrari. Yeah, oh yeah, it was something. It was probably wasn't Ferrari, but it was something. Yeah, but but, and and his sister says, "Oh my God, what did you do?" He said, "Well, listen, this is just a car, and this it's extremely unimportant. What you know, and um, this story really stuck with me because when we go through life, when and but the the I, the interesting part of the story, the punchline of the story, he actually did this long before he was diagnosed with cancer. This is a person who approached life that way. Now, but there is a thing about this. Randy Posh passed away maybe 12, 13 years ago. I don't you know. So so this maybe happened 15 years ago. So um, where is this car today? That you know, that that car, the convertible, that it's somewhere in some kind of junkyard. Does it even matter that if it was clean, if there was a coke spilled in it? It really doesn't, right? What really matters is how Randy lived his life. So I realized if you had a so the all of us there was an expiration day day for all of us, and Randy Posh had a, this uh, six months to leave. So they had this act timer set for six months. He ended up leaving actually ten, eleven months, actually longer than that. But if we behave as if we have six months to leave, we're gonna make it's gonna give us a very important perspective, and will change the way what we value and how we behave. So if you so I if we value, it's gonna reduce the value of material things for us, and emphasize things that are actually more important than relationships. Um, and that is how, uh, and that's basically how I try to approach life. But let me give you a brand new story, and you're gonna like this because I think we also you like we'll also talk about Ukraine in the next segment, in the next show. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you this this very interesting story. I was watching an interview with, uh, with, with Ilya Yashin. Ilya Yashin is a Russian, um, he is a Russian journalist and politician. He was the only uh, critic of Putin and the war, and the war, in, and the war in Ukraine, who left in Russia. Who, you know, everybody else who is criticizing the war doing it from the safety of being in Europe or somewhere else. Yeah, because okay. the one, yeah, the ones in the ones in Russia are getting shipped off to God knows where. No, exactly. By, so by the, the tens the, of thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so the, the nuance here is this. So in the in Russia today, if you call this war a war but not a special operation, uh you you may get up to fifteen years in jail. And if you do it multiple times, then you would you'll be in jail forever basically. So Ilya Yashin, Yashin um, he uh, basically had a three-hour show on YouTube for last four months where he criticized this war endlessly. So they have enough material there to put him in jail forever. So in this interview, you know, the, uh, he was asked, well, how do you spend your day? And the answer he gave me I thought was fascinating. I mean, the answer he gave was fascinating. He said, well, I, you know, I would be lying if I'm not scared. But at the same time, it's incredibly liberating because I, every day when I wake up by the alarm clock, 
I feel absolutely, I'm, I feel feel happy because it's the alarm clock that woke me up. It's not the knock on the door and the police, you know, rushing in and arresting me uh, to put in jail. I feel that I, you know, I don't look forward to next day because I don't know what's going to be tomorrow. I may not be, I may, may not be free person. Therefore, I try to get as much joy as possible out of each day. He said, I read books, I work, I spend a lot of time with friends, and I am so much more actually, um, I'm so much more productive than I, you know, than I was before because I'm not looking forward to tomorrow because tomorrow I may not have, or at least as a free person. And I thought this was a, such a great answer. And Seneca uh, has this concept, uh, each day is a separate life. Try to lead each day as if this is the, the only day you have. That's it. And, I, and, I, and so I love this. So uh, anyway, so that's, you get two stories for the price of one. <laughs> I know you have a lot of friends and you make contact daily with a lot of different investors, a lot of people who know you and trust you, and I'm sure share stories with you and probably at times share, who knows, anything from golf outings to meetings mm -hmm. for coffee, usually probably about business. How many of those people do you feel haven't yet found their essence in terms of what they really enjoy doing and feel kind of trapped uh, by their lives. I know most of them are very successful. And is that happiness alone? Or does it, what does it take beyond material success to really get happiness? Well, it's hard for me to speak for other people. Yeah, But there are two enough. things I know. Yeah, I think the happiness in life, like so money doesn't bring happiness and i know this so we we need um but it could be a source of unhappiness it could be a source of unhappiness because you have too little money and also but also it could be a source of unhappiness when you have a lot of money too by the way but if you have too little money so i, I there was a lot of studies done on this but once you cover your basic needs and i think that you now this is from a few years ago but for most people it's ninety thousand dollars a year or something i forget the number uh the incremental benefit you get from a uh, extra dollar is minimal. Okay, uh, but I also have seen people who have a huge amount of money, and the way they structure their life is such that it brings them a lot of unhappiness because they constantly worry about losing that money. Okay, so the you know even a lot of money could bring a lot of unhappiness too. But I know that uh, the reason the reason money doesn't really bring you happiness long term is that because uh, we ad we adapt very well. We adapt not just to bad things, but to good things as, as well. So it's called a hedonic adaptation. So you adapt when you get new thing, you have this shot of adrenaline, and then it's you know of happiness, and then declines very quickly. And for you to keep getting that shot of adrenaline, now you have to buy more and more expensive things, etc. So money itself does. I don't think it brings happiness. What I found for me. Happiness comes from different sources. Um, creativity is an incredible source you know, of happiness. By the way, that creativity is not always pain-free. Like there's a lot of creative pain you go through to create things. Okay, and that's a that's a I would argue that's a feature of creativity. Though sometimes it feels like a bug. Also, I receive tremendous satisfaction from relationships as well. I think I need both for me to be happy I need both but those are kind of those are probably my biggest sources of happiness output when I, I so I write every day in the morning I write for about two hours a day 
And I cannot tell you how many times I would show up in the morning and I would sit with the computer and I have a blank screen and I produce a complete garbage. And I walk away and this is important. I never criticize myself for what, you know how much I produced. And I walk my, you know, I just walk away and come back the next day and do it over and over again. And there are times where there was a time where three weeks I produced absolutely nothing. But every single time when I do this, I plant seeds in my subconscious. And now by doing this, I it's this time was not wasted. You know, so when I when I come back three weeks later, when you know, when, you know after three weeks of nothingness, I may be walking in the park and suddenly I get an idea. So because what you do is you have the conscious mind and subconscious mind. So anything, any creative, there's a lot of work that happens in your subconscious mind, which is planted through your conscious mind. So a lot of this work is basically happening on your background. Uh, and I think that's this is why, you know, it's important to understand that, yes, you do need to take time off. And also you have to be kind to yourself when things are not working it's okay. It's a you. It's a just you're planting seeds into your subconscious mind. At the end of the book, you write a lot about composers and artists. Why do you feel that they provide such great examples, as to great examples of people who have their soul in the game, who have reached their pinnacle and never stop improving what they do? That's that's a, such a great question. Um, well, first of all. When you listen to either Beethoven, Schubert, or Tchaikovsky, any of those composers today, we listen to the music, uh, to the music, but we don't even think about how much pain, energy went into composing it, right? We take it for granted because that's you know, and that's and I guess that's the way it's supposed to do, right? When you read something that's written so beautifully, that means there was a lot of work that went into it, right? Uh, and and on frustration as well. You first, first of all, if they did not have soul in the game, probably this, their music would not be that good. Let's 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 yeah, let's stop with that. I I think there there's I just think there's so many lessons they can give us. I'll give you I'll give you a few lessons from a. Can, there, there there was this. Um, I'll contrast. I'll give you a contrast of several composers. Um, so in the in the early 1800s, in Vienna, you know, which at the time was like the center of the world, uh, of at least Europe. Beethoven was the like it's it's very difficult to describe how famous he was. Like it's like take Michael Jackson as uh, Frank Sinatra on steroids, uh, and you know you know. So he was the most you know famous composer of that of that era. And in fact, with his Ninth Symphony was composed, you know, uh, was premiered. Basically, somebody quipped that this is like the music is dead. You can't write better than this, right now. Imagine if you are living in Vienna and you are another composer. Like you feel so little compared to this giant Beethoven, and whatever you write, it just doesn't feel right because everybody has this adulation towards Beethoven, and you feel like my music is not good enough. And so, a couple of things. First of all, number one, we don't we will never know the impact Beethoven had on on on. on uh, so we think about positive impacts, but there are also negative impacts because. There were a lot of composers who wrote music. I'm sure it was beautiful, never get published. In in fact, there is a composer, Franz Schubert, who um, lived basically, you know, who who lived, you know, I don't know, probably a few blocks away from Beethoven in Vienna, 
who wrote five or six thousand music pieces during his life. And most of his music probably would not have survived if it was not found after his death by uh, Mendelssohn. And he was, and we were so lucky that you know, that music was discovered because today, and this is very important, when we listen to Schubert's music, which is, by the way, I actually love his music even more than Beethoven's. Okay, we don't compare and say, oh, this music is better than this. To me, personally, his music connects with me better than Beethoven's. Mm -hmm. So I think the lesson here is that in any profession, you're going to be always somebody uh, who is incredibly successful, who is going to shadow a big shadow. And your job is to kind of create your own shadow and not be intimidated by, you know, by that uh, this person's uh, uh, success. Now, there's another interesting story. There was this another uh, composer, Hector Berlioz, who was a Jewish composer. He uh, lived a little bit later after Beethoven. I mean, he was born when Beethoven was still alive, but his, most of his work was done after Beethoven was already gone. And even he was a big fan of Beethoven, but he never got, he got, he got into music later in his life when he was 13. At that point, that was late. You know, but, you know, by that point, uh, uh, Mozart already wrote several symphonies, I'm sure. So he started to study music late, and he did not get as much classical education as other composers. And therefore, like uh, he didn't have to break rules a lot of times because he didn't know what the rules were. And he ended up writing this. So the, anyway, so this, this story actually gets more interesting. He had a crush on this actress, uh, Harriet Smith, I think. And she was a Shakespearean act actress, and he wrote her love letters, and she never answered. So he rented an apartment across the street from her. And uh, he wrote a, a symphony, which basically was like he dedicated to her. That was a love symphony for her, except most music to that point was norm uh, was not what's called program music. Program means there is a theme to the music. So if you think about, you want to think about program music, think about opera. There's a theme, there is a theme, you know, obviously there is a play, you know, music and singing, right? Well, he wrote a program symphony. It's called Symphony Fantastique, where there was this very elaborate theme, you know, and that's, and so that's what, and the, he wrote the music around it. And so he broke all, the, he broke all these traditional rules his this symphony becomes an incredible success. Uh, Harris finds out about it. They get married. Uh, unfortunately, her careers go down downhill. I guess they get divorced, or and you know the marriage never works out. But I think the lesson here is sometimes a traditional education or knowing the rules. The rules can constrain us. So and we need to realize that they what the constraints are. And either we need to break them, or so we the uh, scientists would say we need to look at it from a first principles perspective. How would you do something if you knew nothing about it? Okay, so uh, like you you always you have to become mindful about it because you start thinking, okay, what are the assumptions I'm taking as axioms, and and do do they do we really have to have assumptions? Like I'm giving one assumption that the symphony cannot be pro a program symphony. Well, that was the assumption before uh, Berlioz, and he said, "Well, that's an assumption that kind of makes no sense to me." So he did what he did. Anyway, so that's just two little stories.
Yeah, so he, he broke out of the box, did it, did it his own way, and, and gained his fame that way. I see that. Yeah. Who Whose shadows uh, cast over uh, you in the financial business? Would it be people like Warren Buffett and others? Oh, I know he inspires oh, you because I've seen him. You've mentioned him in your book. Oh, absolutely. Warren Buffett is deservedly cast the big, the big, the biggest shadow of all. And I've seen personally how it impacted others in a very negative way. Uh, I'll give you one little example. Warren Buffett was very famous for saying, I don't buy technology stocks because I don't understand them. And at the time, I think, I don't know, Warren Buffett was 75 years old or something. Um, so a lot of investors who were 20-something years old said, I'm not, I'm not going to buy technology stocks because I don't understand them. And the irony of the story is, well, Warren Buffett, so they, they, they learned their own lesson, number one. They learned the lesson, instead of uh, looking at what, uh, what Warren Buffett thinks, they should have observed how he thinks. And this is important. What Warren Buffett basically was saying, I don't buy technology stocks because, for me, they lie outside of my circle of competence. And his circle of competence of a person who was at this time 75, most of his life, you know, he lived when there was very little technology, you know. Uh, so so for him, they were outside of his historical of competence, he was not buying it. But Warren Buffett also is a student of life. He's also the person who learns and improves. And he actually, he's the, the most successful investment he ever made by the, the amount of money he made was Apple stock. So he actually ended up stretching his circle of competence and bought an Apple and made a tens of billions of dollars so that's kind of you know so yes yeah, so you have to be very careful if you're on somebody's you know in your you know in a so that's anyway so that's the case you know that's what happened in the in the you know, investment world yeah before we're done today i'd like to get some opinions from you regarding where the stock market is going to go i know that you look at things long term as a as a value investor, uh, we're not looking yeah. at day trading. We're not looking at what's going to happen a few weeks yeah. or months from now. But you can start to see things now as things are fleshing out across the yeah. world, as in terms of where it's going. Could you kind of give us your take on where things are going and what investors should be looking at? So, so yeah. So let me just share a secret with your listeners. When you turn on TV and you hear, you know, talking heads telling you what, you know, what they think stock market will do in the next six months or next year. And they sound very confident when they say that. Just let, let me tell you, nobody knows. They really don't. They sound very confident when mm -hmm. they say this, but they don't know because nobody does. But stock market, especially in the short term, it's unpredictable. It's a, it's a very complex system. Like the reason shows like Jim Cramer's are dangerous because they, people feel that they can basically delegate their research to Kramer without doing their own work. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Like, so again, like uh, Jim is a very smart guy. So if you watch that show, again, think about, you know, don't think about what he thinks, but at least think about how he thinks. Okay, and that's important. And then you know, there's, I'm sure there's some good nuggets there too. And you know, I'm sure he has some good nuggets. But don't just blindly watch the show and say Jim said by this, because but Jim, may, by the way, Jim may change his mind tomorrow. But 
if he made a very serious show, his you as you're right, the ratings will not be there. So what you're watching is entertainment, but people right. don't realize that. And I think this is very important. Now about stock market in the long run, I actually wrote two books on this subject. Uh, the one that I would recommend your your listeners to read, it's a called the little book of sideways markets it's going to take you five hours and 26 minutes the only reason i know this because there is an audible version of that that's how long it takes to it you know i think that's how long it is um but basically i'm just giving you a very simple framework if you buy stocks mathematically in the long run i can explain what the, what the stocks will do by looking at two things and i'm ignoring dividends just you know f just to make this simple for now just uh, to simplify things what how, how much earnings going to grow and what's going to happen, what's what's called price turnings. How much do people pay for price, price turnings? So I can look at, if you look at Microsoft over the last 40 years, I, I'm going to make up a number because I don't remember this, but more like it's going to say 20% a year, its earnings have grown on average 20% a year. Okay. Um, there were times when the stock did more than that, that, you know, like let's say it's, you know, it's when the stock give you 30% return, that usually followed by a period by where the stock did nothing for 10 or 15 years. And actually that's exactly happened after 2020, uh, after 2000, because price earnings got so high, the return got above the earnings growth, and then price earnings declined, and you gave it back all the extra return. Mm -hmm. So price to earnings is mean reverting. So when it gets very high, like a pendulum, it goes to the other extreme. So when you when it goes high, you get extra return, when it goes the other way, it's taken away from you. Now, the, if you look at the economy today, our valuations of stock market is very, very high. On historical norms, if you normalize for very high profit margins, I'm not going to go there, very high. Now, if you look at the economic growth, we are finally facing the kind of the pay, payback time for the last 20 years. Our interest rates were very low. Um, our government debt was was growing, and that actually helps economic growth. And now the inverse is happening. Interest rates are going up. That slows down economic growth. And also the government, uh, if government borrows more money, that's going to be that's going to be inflationary because now interest rates are so much higher. In the past, government could borrow money and simply paid very little for the interest you know, for for its debt. We didn't really feel it. We're going, to, you know, we're going to feel it this time. So if we have earnings growth, a lot of it is going to be just inflation. The real earnings growth is going to be, I would argue, probably slower over the next decade or two than over the previous two decades. So I look at the stock market. So in other words, if you just buy the index overall, I think the returns you'll get are going to be extremely unexcited. So, Final question for you, Vitaly. How has your book been received? You know, I think the the feedback I get is absolutely incredible. Um, when I wrote the book, my goal was basically, I didn't write it for financial reasons, because if I did this, I could have spent my time so much better, I would have received so much better return on investment. You know, if, they, if I was thinking about money, I wrote it because I wanted to, it was altruistic, uh, really, endeavor. I wanted to help people. And I'm getting emails, and there are a lot of emails from readers who are saying, that the book has had a tremendous positive impact on their lives, which is, and also, you know, like there's a, so many great reviews on Amazon where people say the same thing. So I, I, I feel my objective, I just needed to touch the life of one reader. 
and I've already did that. So uh, from now, from this point, it's just it's it's all gravy. So I'm uh, it's I'm glad that actually I'm having a you know positive impact on other people's lives. I enjoyed your book, Soul in the Game, very very much. One of the best reviews you've got uh, from General Se- and it's from General Stanley McChrystal. Fascinating, often amusing. One of those much needed reminders that we are the architects of how we live. It, Right spot on. Just a great, great review. And you've got many, many good reviews from known people here. Just uh, wonderful people raving about it. It's a good book. I've got, we've, and listeners, we've only scratched the surface. There's so much you can learn from this book. And you can also treat it like a coffee table book going chapter by chapter. They're not necessarily strung together. You can open up to almost any page, read for about five minutes, ten minutes, and pick it up again the next day in a totally different location. It's one of those great books that can just provide inspiration at any page you turn to. Yeah, John, and um, if uh, your readers uh, get the book, make sure to go to soulinthegame.net because uh, after the, I couldn't stop writing the book, so I ended up writing five more chapters after already the book went to press. So if they go to soulinthegame.net, they get instructions how to get those five more chapters absolutely free. You know, so it's a, yeah. Well, Vitaly, thank you very much. And listeners, we're looking forward to our next interview with Vitaly. He's going to enlighten us regarding the current situation in Ukraine. He knows a lot of people over there. Plus, he grew up in Soviet Russia. He knows uh, he's got the filter built in when it comes to the news Russia's putting out and what is really happening. Uh, it's nice to have that filter. Wish more people in this country had that kind of a filter. Uh, but he can certainly enlighten us as to what's going on over there. We'll have a lot of questions for him. So look forward to that interview with Vitaly coming up next. And meanwhile, go out and get yourself a copy of Soul in the Game by Vitaly Katzenelson. John, thank you very much. Thank you.